the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, joining you on a very bleak Tuesday in Berlin where there's no palpable sense of mourning for Germany to exit from the Football World Cup because frankly no one seemed to care that much in the first place. My name is Daniel Freebell. I am the host of this week's episode of the Cycling Podcast. We continue our mazy backwards slalom through the highs and lows of the 2022 season. This indeed is the penultimate episode of that sort of series. We've still got team of the year to come. But today, we're going to be awarding, crowning, showering with recyclable confetti the individual who produced the comeback of the season, and indeed, hearing at great length from him. But first, coming to us from the mean streets of Pietrasanta in Tuscany, Italy, where the biggest breaking news of the last few weeks, trust me because I scoured the local press for the purposes of this intro, was the fearsome Guardia Costiera swooping to break up not one but two unauthorised alfresco dinners on the beach on the night of Halloween. It's a man whose idea of a trick or treat is the choice of a two or three Michelin starred lunch overlooking the med. He's a former spin doctor to some of the sport's leading teams, a winemaker, an acclaimed author, and some would even say poet, in common with the most famous product of Pietrasanta, which is to say the 19th century bard Josue Carducci. In his youth, I learned this week, Carducci used to keep an owl, a hawk, and a wolf as pets. And this guest is as wise as the first of those, as sharp-eyed as the second, and as fierce as the third usually ironically when the apex predator in the team that calls itself the wolf pack is mentioned. That said, his bark is worse than his bites. He's our great Dane. He's Brian Nygaard. Hi, Daniel. Thank you very much for... Brian, I mean, that's, wow. That's, that was that's even... the intro of the year for me, at least. I'm, I'm going to play that. <laughs> I'm going to put that on the jingle uh, as for my phone ringtone. I complain, I carp a lot about the complaints I get for those intros, but we've also had some nice, some very nice feedback. There was someone who wanted me to create a whole episode, and I don't think this will happen, whole episode, a sort of mashup, mix-up of all of the intros that we've been doing since the World Cup. I think you can get a, get a job in Las Vegas, you know, announcing title, title fights. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, good. Brian. Brian, we didn't have you on last week, and I, I would have liked to have you on last week because we were talking cycling media, and you are someone who has seen the cycling media from, well, 360 degrees because you've been a journalist, you started off as a journalist, you have become a journalist again now in the middle um, of your career in professional cycling, for most of your career in professional cycling, you were a press officer, communications director, spin doctor. Um, you listened to last week's episode, um, but I wanted to get your thoughts just brief- briefly before we move on with our news roundup about what was said, and particularly that role of the press officer, which was a relatively new innovation at the start of the century. There weren't that many of them around at the start of the century. It's become de rigueur. Most teams have two or three. How have things changed in particular over the last few years? And how does this maybe impact on things we were saying? Um, how much has that role changed? Um, it's, it, it's changed completely. It's, it's, when I started, it was yeah, some tw- it's more than 20 years ago. There's a before and after regarding social media for obvious reasons, but there's also a sad element, and that's something that you touch upon in the podcast as well, the, the decline of, of general media and then certainly the decline of general media's presence at bike racing. You know, the, the first year I did, the first many years I did uh, Tirreno, there were 
probably five or seven times as many journalists there as there are now. There are hardly any. There'd be five or six from Belgium media, media uh, Dutch journalists in abundance, etc. And that's not the case anymore. And many magnificent buffets as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever happened to those? And then um, I would say the the role now. This, it's changed for the better in the sense that, you know, you said that I worked as a spin doctor and that, that's not entirely true for, for all of the years I worked in cycling, but it certainly was the years I worked for Bjarne Ries uh, because it was strategic communication more than anything. It, was, it wasn't just facilitating journalists as, as it was for a lot of other seasons that I worked. But I find now, and that's not just looking from the outside, but also being at bike races, uh, most recently with you as well, that I find the, the press officer function now is, it's, it's turned into a, if you're a press officer today in professional cycling at world tour level, you're a production crew more than anything. You, you, you facilitate content, you're your, your own news channel. Uh, and I remember when, when I worked with the magnificent Dan Jones, uh, who I think trailblazed a lot in cycling in terms of getting fans access to the teams by his now famous um, backstage pass. Uh, I think a lot of the teams, all of the top tier teams anyways, in, in, in their own way, I guess, with their own language and their own means, have have made this element as an integral part of how they communicate. And the press officers are often, most often, almost always there to do that and then whatever is needed in terms of media management is often led to the to the race organizer i would say if you had a i mean if, if you have a, a big story at the tour if you have a jersey at the tour the aso are very helpful uh, in terms of facilitating the media that are there and there are obviously a lot of them at the tour uh, but I, I almost think unless you have a pressing story or an issue management situation you, you would almost not have to be there anymore uh, on, unless and things were dragging out in a way that rider would be uncomfortable with so that's changed completely. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why I would probably be a, a, a pretty mediocre press officer now. I, th I think we both agree yeah, on that. I think that I've, hands <laughs> down, you know, I don't think I could claim the salary that I wanted either. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's it's now that the, you spoke a lot about the, the issues and the difficulties in running independent media and, and, and having a, an independent voice in cycling as, as a journalist. Because of the this content, this this incredible amount of content that fans can get access to you, you don't need to go via the media anymore and yeah and, and and one problem is how much whole aspects of professional cycling have been demystified by some of this content you know the the briefing the the the, the pre-race briefing i remember an article maybe 15 or 20 years ago in velo magazine in france and it, they had got access and they've got photos of the briefing pre-Tour of Flanders on the Quick Step bus, or it might even have been Mappe back then. And this was seen as an enormous coup. This was entry into the inner sanctum, something that had never been seen before. You'd never even, most people had never even seen the inside of a team bus before. This is something that's so commonplace no one, now no one that would probably, it has become almost yeah, banal. Yeah, it's become banal. But I think that there's a good side to that, that because it keeps challenging the teams to make themselves interesting. And I don't mean that in the sense that they should start acting and they should, you know, uh, be, a, be a different uh, athlete or person, whomever they, they, they might be. Uh, I think we'll also see now with the Netflix uh, project coming before the tour next year. That they probably all they're going to set the bar even higher for for access and for how how close we can actually get and and we want to see the the critical moments we want to see the discussions we want to see the conflicts you know uh, I think 
it's getting a little bit, um, you know, coming from what you said about the team meeting that we that we that we also fly on the wall when they pop the champagne when they win a stage. I don't really care about that anymore. I mean, it's nice and it's 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 interesting, I guess, for for some. But I I don't I'm that doesn't really do anything for me anymore. Brian, just briefly before we do get on with the news roundup, how do you persuade the riders and the teams of the utility of and the place for alongside their own content, the utility, the necessity of an independent media, old school media as you and I used to know it, the guys in the press room, the guys and girls in the press room? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um I'm not sure that that would actually have any effect to anyone uh, being a professional athlete if I said it, but I, I think we, we have, as citizens of modern society, we have a moral obligation to support independent journalism. If it wasn't for that, a lot of the issues that surround us now wouldn't be covered in, in the way, in the very important way that it should be, including professionals cycling the comings and goings of sponsors, sports washing, uh, environmental issues, all kinds of things that we need to uh, that we need to talk about in the context of, of professional cycling. Um, Having said that, though, I would find if, if I was with a young rider who was, you know, extremely talented, won races early on, I would probably also have to coax that person into saying that it was his, his goddamn obligation, really, that, that you know, and then hof hopefully eventually they'll learn to see um, that that is also part of being, um, uh, even if they, they're reluctant role models, but part of being an athlete that has a lot of eyes on whatever they do and whatever they say. So I think eventually when you when you get older and when you uh, potentially also become a, a consumer of media yourself, you probably also understand the difference between well-made and poorly made journalism, especially if you have to pay for it. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. Now, you can use the Super Sapiens system of continuous glucose monitoring to help manage your energy levels throughout the day, ensuring that you're at your very best when training or racing. Over time, you can learn how your body responds to certain types of food and tweak your diet so that if you suffer from that familiar sinking feeling, the post-lunch crash in the afternoons, you can work out through a process of learning what causes it and eliminate it. Go to supersapiens.com to find out more. Now, before I hand back to Daniel... A couple of other bits of business. First of all, the MAP Cycling Podcast Collection and particularly the Dot Jersey are now back in stock at map.cc. You may well remember that back in the summer, the Dot Jersey won the listener vote. You all voted out there in your thousands for Dot to win, despite Francois Thomaso's best efforts to subvert the vote. A Dot won, and the jersey went out of stock for a while, but it's back in stock now for both men and women in a range of sizes. Go to map.cc to check out the range of cycling podcast accessories as well. If you've not seen the Dot jersey, you can see it at map.cc, of course, also on the cyclingpodcast.com. Very much a 1980s vibe, uh, the fluoro yellow green with pink and indigo colours. 
really looks like it could have been in the pro peloton in the late 80s i would say late 80s perhaps very early 90s that was certainly the idea anyway and the map and cycling podcast logos have been reimagined to show what they might have looked like had we both been around in the 1980s which of course neither of us were Also on the map website, there's a Christmas gift list to browse through to give you some ideas for some Christmas gifts, maybe cycling caps and socks, bottles, gloves, arm and leg warmers, or even some e-gift cards if you're not quite sure what you want right now. That's all at map.cc. And very lastly, this week we released an episode of Kilometre Zero all about The Cyclist and His Shadow, a book written by Olivier Haralambon, translated from the original French into English by Francois Tomaso. And in the episode of Kilometre Zero, Francois explains how he first came across the book and why he fell in love with it. Uh, Check that out. That is on the feed right now. And you can buy the book at thecyclingpodcast.com. Talking of poorly made journalism, let's get on with the news roundup. My news roundup. <laughs> the cliffhanger of the autumn has a denouement of sorts, or at least a partial one. That is to say that Mark Cavendish won't be joining the team formerly known as B&B Hotels KTM, whose future is also now in jeopardy. We've been following this story last Friday, the team manager, Jérôme Pinot, informed the riders under contract, for his riders under contract, and those who had at one point pledged to sign, like Cavendish, that they should look elsewhere for future employment. It's being reported that the French high street cosmetic giant, Sephora, Sephora, um, was one of the last potential sponsors on the hook but they finally told Pino they wouldn't back his project. A few of the existing or supposedly future B&B riders have already found jobs. Ramon Sinkeldam has signed for Alpes in Phoenix, uh, Luca Mozzato for Trek, but there's still no news on Cavendish's next employer. A few teams have ruled themselves out. Others have no room on their roster. Some outlets have reported in the last couple of days that Ineos is now a possibility for the Manx missile. I have no real substantial substantive information to add to this Brian Um, nothing from Mark Cavendish or his entourage in the last couple of days so like everyone else we're kind of left to join the dots Ineos is Ineos a possibility well it could be a possibility because they don't really have anyone who I think is among the the big favourites to win the Tour de France next year we know that riding the Tour de France is probably a a priority for Cavendish next year um, as he looks to break free from Eddie Merckx's stage victory record. Um, the, the big issue, and we've mentioned this, we've touched on this, I think, is that he left Bahrain, what is now Bahrain victorious, in relatively unhappy acrimonious circumstances. And Rod Ellingworth was the general manager of Bahrain victorious at that time. Their relationship has not been great since then or it certainly wasn't great whether there's been a reconciliation in the meantime I don't know but Rod Ellingworth certainly has, has been calling the shots at Ineos so that is one hurdle that they would have to overcome I think that over the last few years there have been numerous occasions when Cavendish would have happily rejoined what was then Sky is now Ineos and he's even made inquiries to that effect whether those inquiries have been made in the last few weeks or months um, about now, I don't know. Brian, any thoughts? I think that's extremely interesting. Who would have thought um, that if if it pans out to to be be the scenario that he would go back to to Ineos? I think at this point, and and it's it's quite sad with with another with that type of blow for for a team like like B and B not being able to submit a successful uh, application that late, especially for the riders and the staff. 
uh, I think Cav would go to any team that will take him to the tour. And I don't think that he's in a position where he could even have preferential choice. And I don't even I don't think he has that he can that he can negotiate salary to I mean especially at this point of the year unless he brings unless he brings money himself. It's such a difficult um, story that we all we all want to see that book ending uh, with with Cavendish. And ha- had he just won one more stage, had he just pushed that uh, that record to to his favor, it, it would have been a fair tale ending. But it, it, he's had such a great career; he could stop. He could have stopped a long time ago, and it would still be great. But he has also, I think, his his ambition is is you know beyond anything that, that that we could ever discuss because it's 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 undying obviously but he must be certain somewhere in himself that he can actually go and win at least one stage at the tour and be a rider at that level or else he wouldn't be fighting for this yeah and he has been strung along unfortunately by Jérôme Pinot we don't know all of the circumstances we don't know what guarantees Jérôme Pinot was given but certainly he gave the impression to a lot of riders around about the summer, July, June, July, August, that this project was going to get on its feet and that has not been the case. And, you know, there aren't that many options now. You know, it was a big priority, I know, for Cavendish. It has been a big priority over the last year or two uh, to be riding on teams where he he likes the bike. He gets on with the bike. Um, There were a lot of discussions with BMC about this team that he was supposedly joining and he was quite happy with that but now I guess he's going to have to make some compromises and he'll probably have to make financial compromises compromises of other sorts as well Brian let's move on Uh, Marion Russe the directrice of the Tour Tour de France femme has left her role as the directrice of the Tour de la Provence according to the French press Russe is one of several individuals and entities owed money by the owner of the race, Pierre-Maurice Courtade. Courtade is reportedly trying to sell the race, which was won this year by Nairo Quintana. The still teamless Nairo Quintana at the time recording. No news on Nairo Man in the last few days. Cyclocross, deep breath, Brian. The three tenors, the three amigos, the three musketeers, the three BGs, the bacon, lettuce and tomato of cycling around muddy fields. That is to say, Van der Poel, Van Aert and Pitcock were back in action at the weekend. It was Van der Poel who came out on top in the latest round of the World Cup in Antwerp. Despite having gone bust in the super prestige boom the previous day, crashing and hurting his shoulder, Van der Poel soon overhauled the fast-starting Van Aert, beat him by 23 seconds. Pidcock came home in 8th place. Laurens Schweik now leads the World Cup standings by 6 points over Ellie Isabit. In the women's race in Antwerp, we saw the latest episode in what's turning into a thrilling head-to-head between two 20-year-old Dutch women, Fem van Empel and Pot Pieterser. After two straight wins for Pieterser, it was Van Empel who won this time. She also extended her lead in the World Cup standings to 95 points. Track cycling, even deeper breath. Last weekend saw the final round of the UCI Track Champions League in London. We'd reported on the previous rounds in Mallorca, Berlin and Paris. They were all just one-nighters, whereas the season's finale took place over two evenings. With the overall titles for this season up for grabs, I can tell you that the end of the doubleheader Jennifer Valente of the USA was the overall Champions League winner in the women's endurance. Mathilde Croix uh, triumphed emphatically in the women's sprint. Claudia Imhoff of Switzerland narrowly beat Sebastian Mora of Spain in the men's endurance. And Matthew Richardson of Australia claimed the men's sprint. 
Last bit of news, and we're going to finish on a sombre note once again. Uh, we reported last week on the tragic death of the recently retired Italian writer Davide Rebellin, and also on the grisly circumstances of that death, including the fact that the lorry driver who struck Rebellin fatally near his home in the Veneto had fled the scene of the collision. It's been reported in the last few days that the driver is a German man. He's 62 years old. He has previous convictions, including a drink-driving offence in Italy. He's also been located uh, near Osnabrück in the far northwest of Germany. A, a criminal investigation has been opened in Vicenza. However, the procedure is complicated by the fact that the death by dangerous driving does not exist as a criminal offence here in Germany. It's been reported in Italy that a trial would have to take place there and should the suspect be found guilty, the Italian government would have to request his extradition from Germany. Uh, meanwhile, this week, uh, Rebellin's French wife posted on her social media accounts that he was her angel and that his death has torn her apart. And Brian, I mean, I said this was pretty grisly, well, grisly news last week, and some of the details that have emerged since have been pretty shocking as well. There were also a couple of other really tragic pieces of news over the weekend, young Italian um, cyclists who were killed in similar circumstances and this has prompted obviously a lot of soul searching in Italy to do with road safety and cycling safety and um, friend of the podcast uh, Alessandro De Marchi future bike exchange Jayco rider and um, he posted on Instagram at the weekend particularly reacting to these other two deaths of these two young Italians he said there's no infraction of the highway code with which a cyclist can kill someone as a motorized vehicle can there isn't one whereas a car can be a lethal weapon even if it hits another car a motorized vehicle can kill another road user a cyclist riding two abreast cannot all of our other debates and discussions about headlights bells cycle paths are just sterile ignorant whataboutery a car is a loaded gun get it into your head brian you're in Italy. I guess you've been following this story as well. Um, you're also, well, you're a road user in Italy. You're a cyclist in Italy. Um, I mean, first of all, talk to us a bit about your reaction last week yeah, to it's, this tragic it's, news. It's devastating and it's devastating, you know, for for, for personal reasons, for Rebellin's uh, family. Um, but it, it's also a reminder, uh, you know, when we, we we get taken back to other incidences, of the same nature, you know, uh, going back to Michele Sarpuscarponi, which is, which I think also for a lot of people in cycling is a scar that doesn't heal very easily, if if at all. But it's a general problem in Italy, and it's also a problem that's now taken, uh, uh, has been brought to the attention of, of, of the political level, thankfully, because it is around, and it's almost every day, it's 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 that, that someone dies on a bike in Italy, which is, is absolutely insane, and it's... Um, I think the the road culture here is is very varied uh, in the same sense that that the the quality of the road in Italy is very varied from from one part to another. You you've been more or less all over the the Italian peninsula, so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I see it now from a, the perspective of a, a father as well. You know, my, my children are only three years old, but they um, they they start to be aware of traffic. They start to be aware of cars, and I certainly also am a lot more aware when I'm going out on on the few occasions that I actually managed to to um, to go for a few hours on the bike 
uh, I'm, I'm a lot more careful now but it's also uh, it's not just me being being older and, and having to be more cautious it's also because of the the, the driving that we see and I, I live in an area that's you know this part of Tuscany can be quite busy during the summer so I um, as I think many many people do when they plan their rides there's a certain part of the day where you don't go there's certain roads that you don't use and then and in I think this is one of the reasons, not just in, in, maybe not so much in Italy, but especially other places, uh, be it in the States, and I would also think in the UK, that the rise of, of gravel cycling has has had such a huge impact. It's because that those dangers are, are not present there. You you have the roads to yourself. You, you, you're you in a completely different environment where you can basically just enjoy your, your ride, really, and, and, and be, in, be in nature in, in a way that you, you possibly only can very few other places uh, especially in the bigger cities um so it's you know the the, the problem in italy is is it's the same problem as everywhere and and i think the one thing that that we all have to realize i'm, I'm also I, I i currently you know i don't own a car because I, I don't need it but uh if if you drive a car you and and you also ride your bike you're a lot more aware of of the dangers and you know your blind angles and you know that that little bit of extra patience you need when passing bike riders and that little bit extra attention is is crucial you know the 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 five minutes that i can you know some people can be late that that causes them to to be aggressive or um, causes them to to be angry in traffic is could mean the loss of someone's father someone's wife someone's brother someone's best friend you know and i think it's completely crazy that we don't understand all of us collectively that that the road belongs to everyone who's using it and and we we cannot just continue to to mourn and 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 be cry when when accidents happen it it really needs firm action like it does here in italy and that's also why the the meter and a half rule has has become part of the political agenda now from at least from the center left from the from the pd party here in italy indeed brian indeed Uh, brian we're going to inch towards the main event of the podcast um i said at the start of the show that Today's episode is going to be devoted to, dedicated to the comeback of 2022. Um, I started thinking a couple of weeks ago about the candidates, Brian. Um, there were a couple of comebacks where the stakes were a lot higher than the one that we're going to talk about. Um, Milan Varda, the young Dutch rider, um, it, he had an awful crash in the Tour of the Basque Country in April. He suffered broken vertebrae, a fractured collarbone, uh, broken shoulder blade. Even more seriously, compression of his carotid artery um, that supplies blood to the brain. He was in an artificial coma. Um, He had stents um, inserted in that carotid artery to keep him alive. And he made a miraculous recovery and was, in fact, back racing by the end of the season. I spoke to, well, spoke to Tobias Voss and Jonas Vingegaard's coach, Tim Heemskerk of Jumbo Visma a couple of weeks ago about Tobias Foss and he's actually also Milan Varda's coach. Let's just hear actually from Tim Heemskerk um, about what a relief it was to see Milan Varda back in action at the end of the year. That is a, a really insane year, a roller coaster because I'm also the coach of Milan Varda. Yeah. Um, so yeah, How, how's this he season uh, actually really good. Yes, yes, I'm so happy that uh, yeah. He was really, really injured um, and yeah, didn't look good at that point. And now he's back on the bike. I saw him yesterday. He's also shining. And yeah, I'm really happy uh, we can look forward that he actually did race already this year because then he also yeah. also had to deal uh, with giving the interviews already. And now, yeah, he's back an athlete. And um, 
yeah, now we can advance and uh, build up towards next uh, season. So uh, yeah, it's been a roller coaster year. Really, uh, really strange uh, feeling. <laughs> yeah, I bet, so. I bet. Brian, there was also, of course, Egan Bernal's awful accident. He crashed into a lorry while training on his time trial bike in Colombia in late January. Uh, left him with injuries to his chest, his spine, his femur. He came back to racing late in the summer. He raced the Tour of Denmark. He raced the Deutschland Tour and a couple of other small Italian races or one-day Italian races. Um, he was certainly another candidate. Strictly on the road in terms of results, guys who were bouncing back um, after difficult well, 2021 seasons. One in particular, Jai Hindley. Um, he'd had that fantastic breakthrough in 2020. Giro Italia nearly won that race. Uh, suffered last year, really struggled in 2021, then came back and won the Giro this year. And, well, we're talking about sort of isolated moments that certainly, to me, there on the road witnessing um, it felt like a, a, a comeback, a moment of redemption, a moment of relief. And Dylan Kronewegen at the Tour de France winning his stage in Denmark, obviously well publicised what happened with him and Fabio Jakobsen at the Tour of Poland in 2020. And there's been a, a sort of long tail to that incident, recriminations, legal cases, uh, I, I guess a lot of soul searching. Well, we know a lot of soul searching from Dylan Kronewegen. And that was a big moment for him, I thought. Um, but Brian, none of those none of those candidates are our comeback of the year. But did you have any thoughts on this? Uh, any any anyone make a stronger case um, than any of the others in your eyes? I mean, it's, it's difficult to compare someone coming back from potentially a, a career-threatening injury and then being able to be a, an athlete again at, at whichever level, and, and in the same way that we all know what happened to Chris Froome and how he was crippled by the horrific crash uh, during the warm-up at, at the time trial at the Dauphiné. The fact that, that he was back racing in the season, uh, Egan Banal, was extremely impressive, but I don't think it surprised anyone, who, who, especially the people who know him really well, that his, his, his willingness to, to come back and he, how much he wants to be competitive again is, is, seems pretty unparalleled at, at, at that level. He also, you know, and, uh, if you compare him to Froome, he has a, he's at a completely different age of, um, and a different part of his career. But that was extremely impressive, and and and, and, and as objective as I want to be, I, I always support any athlete who uh, who's able to come back from from such devastating injuries and then being able to be be even in the peloton and, and finishing a bike race. And I think it was extremely important for the next steps of Inger Bernal's career that he's able to uh, that he's able to that he was able to race this year, and that, I think that would make him far more eligible for for results in 23 that he's actually raced this year and he seems like he's he's really found form again and he looks to be able to train without uh, any difficulties and then we didn't mention that because he's not racing and you know Michael Valgren had a potential career threatening crash as well um in the lead up to the tour and and he's actually back on the bike again on the roads of Monaco and that's 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 a, a, a similar type of comeback and something that that brings me great joy because working with athletes and, and you also know it as well Daniel, they they identify so much with their sport with their physical ability to perform um and and they're they 
their self-perception is tied to their bodily function in a different way than I'm sure that it is for, for you and definitely especially me. Um, so it, 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 it will be deteriorating for anyone's uh, psyche or, or, or phys- psychological well-being that they aren't able to compete. So I, I have a, a endless amounts of sympathy and I'll, I'll, I'll back any athlete coming back from severe injury. Jai Hindley is, is interesting because we, you and I both uh, were at the Giro and we saw him win and, and, and the way he, the confidence and the physical ability that he showed at, at that level was just astonishing. And, and I think from, from, from that perspective, that was a massive comeback. And I think a lot of people, you know, not just winning, um, you know, when, when Tao Ging had won that Giro, people were saying, oh, that was just, you know, it was a second order Giro. It was, a, you know, a circumstance by the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. But the racing was real this year, and 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 as as difficult as it was to enjoy it, because it was, you and I spoke about that at length during the podcast that we did, that the suspense was either killing us or or, or boring us to death. Uh, but his his win there was extraordinary, especially in that last uh, defining stage up to the Lama Molada. So uh, you know, having been there, I mean, that sometimes changes your perspective on what you what you notice and what you appreciate. Definitely, and and I, I enjoyed yeah, I, I enjoyed seeing that. That was, uh, I was I was well entertained. Um, maybe because I was traveling with you, but I think that I thought that was a good comeback too. I think our journey was, in some respects, on certain days, certain meals in particular, it was more entertaining than the racing. But anyway, Brian, the winner is the winner is Garant Thomas. Um, 36 years old in May he turned and he was coming off a pretty rotten 2021 which was sort of summed up by his Tour de France where he finished 41st on general classification he was also out of contract at the end of 2021 there was some thought that he might leave Ineos Grenadiers he finally did renew his contract with them but it has since emerged that it was with some maybe a, a bit of sort of Um, hesitation on their part on his part because it didn't seem as though he was going to be the team leader for Ineos at the Tour de France this year indeed they went in with Adam Yates Danny Martinez they also had others other riders like Tom Pidcock and all of whom were viable options at the Tour de France this year Thomas was in the team and well what happened he ended up finishing third in the Tour de France this was after winning the Tour de Suisse in June and he finished third in the Tour seven minutes down on general class Classification. Um, rode a, quite a conservative but a very smart, very canny race, didn't he? Uh, he was often dropped by Tadej Pogacar and Jonas Vingegaard in the mountains, but but always well rode within himself. Showed a lot of savoir faire, I thought. After the Tour de France, he then got a bronze medal in the Commonwealth Games individual time trial. But it was it was a a, a, a resolute performance particularly in the Tour de France wasn't it from Garrett Thomas Brian it didn't get enough attention because uh, of, of the the battle and the duel between Pogacar and Vingegaard you know and, and he wasn't just the best of the rest I think his 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 race got overshadowed by those two but but his performance was extraordinary uh, when you look at the the age gap of of 10 years between roughly 10 years between him and the two other guys on the podium it's significant because if you have to look at the people that were behind Garen Thomas and how, you know, how uh, you can't say he did it all by himself, but I think there was a lot of it that was down to his own determination and his, obviously his experience, which is completely different than, than the one the two other guys in the podium had. I thought it was extremely impressive. And it's also, there's, he's just, there's just so much panache to him. There's so much 
he's such a he's such a character. Uh, regardless of whatever he wins and or doesn't win, Garen Thomas and he, he's um he's had such an amazing run in, in cycling and to be able to do what he did at, at this age at, at such a hard I mean everyone agrees that it was just one of the hardest tours in, in recent history and especially because of how it was raced it it is an immense accomplish, accomplishment and something that I that I that I I would say it's it's probably even more uh, impressive than than when he finished second and Brian someone who comes across as incredibly laid back but as we, we're going to hear in my interview with him in just a moment someone with a real inner steel um, without that inner steel you do not have the career that Garrett Thomas has had but without too much further ado Brian I think we should get to the main event of this week's podcast and that interview that extended interview with Garrett Thomas in which we talk about um, brace yourself there's a bit of football chat unfortunately I'm sorry I'm sorry um, but we get it out of the way early on it's a lot of talk about podcasting and then of course there's plenty of talk about the Tour de France and particularly the prelude to that Tour de France as I said the doubts about his capacity at the age of 36 to lead Ineos how he debunked them and well what also may lie ahead for Garrett Thomas so let's get to that now he's the winner of our comeback of the year 2022 Brian Nygaard it was your comeback today after three or four weeks and without you on the podcast it's been a pleasure as always thank you Brian thank you Daniel always a pleasure on my behalf as well with LinkedIn jobs we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Just before we get our comeback and comebacker of the year, Lionel and I would like to update you on our Friends of the Cycling Podcast scheme, series, subscription. Most of you will know what I mean. First of all, we'd like to say thank you, a heartfelt thank you for your support during this most difficult year for the Cycling Podcast with Richard Moore's passing at the end of March and some other personal challenges as well. We're very aware that the podcast looks and sounds different to what it was, but unfortunately reinvention was a necessity, not a choice for us this year. Through that process, we've had lots of lovely and supportive messages that have comforted us in our decision to carry on and at least attempt to honour Richard's legacy. I'll remind you that a Friends of the Podcast subscription offers access to the Friends of the Podcast feed containing more than 60 episodes. Friends subscription also contributes hugely to our free coverage. It directly enables us to cover the three grand tours on the ground and to make our other shows such as the Cycling Podcast Femina, Service Course and Explore. Each year we pledge to add 11 brand new episodes for Friends of the Cycling Podcast. However, this year we have prioritised delivering our Grand Tour coverage, which would simply not have been possible without our Friends of the Podcast financial support. We've launched three Friends of the Podcast episodes so far, the three-part story of the Cycling Podcast, Giro Vagando, the Giro Road Trip and record of records my trip to see Filippo Ganna break the hour record we plan to release some more episodes between Christmas and New Year but we are very aware that we are off the back we are slightly behind schedule and so we have decided to pause collecting subscription fees until March 2023 
Friends of the podcast don't need to do anything. If your renewal date is in December, January or February, you will still have access to the feed until March, no matter what. So you won't miss an episode of the 2022 program. Your 2023 payment will then be collected automatically in March. If your renewal date is at any other time in the year, your subscription will renew exactly as it would ordinarily have done. If you want to check your renewal date or account status, go to thecyclingpodcast.com and click in the main menu where it says friends of the podcast, subscribe or log in. If you are a best friend of the podcast and you haven't claimed your gift, a copy of The Cyclist and His Shadow, get in touch by email. That is at contact at thecyclingpodcast.com. If you're not a friend of the podcast, you can still sign up as normal and listen to the 60 plus episodes on the feed right now, plus what we have planned over the coming weeks and months. I'll conclude by saying once again, thank you for your patience and for creating the community that still is the life force of The Cycling Podcast. Now, finally, it's time for me in conversation with Geraint Thomas. So Geraint Thomas, the second Arsenal fan in two weeks on the podcast, which is excellent news as far as I'm concerned. Two well, two weeks ago it is now, we had our ride of the year, Geraint, was Tobias Foss. Unfortunately, when I was interviewing him, I didn't realise he was an Arsenal fan. Otherwise, I would have I would have peppered him with questions about that. But then I saw on his Instagram that he'd been on a trip to London recently and he'd taken some photos outside of the Emirates Stadium. Um, but I don't know about you, Geraint, but we always alienate people when we talk about football, which we do a lot on the podcast. We It always gets a mention every week because it's kind of well within my frame of reference. Um, I don't know if there are any, are there any such sort of sensitive or unpalatable topics for your podcast listeners that you know about? Huh. Um, not really, I don't think so, but I definitely don't want to talk about football after recent events. So. <laughs> but um, Arsenal obviously flying high, Wales yeah, not quite so much. Less, but, so, less yeah. so. And you had Aaron Ram. You had an, a former Arsenal player. If um, the listeners will bear with us for a second, you had a former Arsenal player, Aaron Ramsey, on the podcast um, a couple of weeks ago, and he was in action, of course, in Qatar for the Welsh team. But Geraint, the real reason you're here, of course, is that you have been elected our well, the winner of our comeback of the year for 2022. And we're going to talk in a, in a minute about whether you even consider it a comeback, whether we should consider it a comeback. But before that, since you're a more prolific podcaster than even I am, um, I wanted to ask you about podcasting. You, you've got you're the custodian of two podcasts. You've got the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club, and you've got what's occurring that you do with Luke Rowe. I want to know how, well, t- talk to me about the genesis of these two things. Why did they start? Um, how much of the initiative came from you? Let's start there. Um, so basically, the What's Occurring one started first. That was where Luke, we were just at the tour, and we just thought, I can't remember what year it was now. Um, it's been going a while, though, and, and we just thought, oh, should we just start a pod? Like, And then kind of half jokingly saying we don't have to do media afterwards and we just do a podcast and this this is the thing you see i was gonna i was gonna get to this because the suspicion and um, because i've just done another podcast actually about the woes of the cycling media and and the suspicion is some of it's justified some of it's understandable suspicion is that a lot of riders now think that they can remove the filter and they can do it on their own because you can you know you mm. can you can talk for an hour and it doesn't have to go through a journalist who might misquote you or misinterpret you. So that's always kind of 
what we we wonder whether that's behind it well that whole thing about being misinterpreted is probably safer doing it with a journalist because when it's just me and luke it's just like we just <laughs> chat a bit of rubbish and we're kind of our sense of humor is that we can kind of um <laughs> maybe say things we don't necessarily mean but say it to be just a for a joke you know um so that's a it can be a bit dangerous um we haven't got ourselves into an, into any trouble yet but um none no trouble at all not with anyone, uh, no? Well, we might have upset a few people, but they haven't said anything to us. But, um, yeah, the, and we were jokingly saying that because you know what it's like in the tour. Like, for instance, if you win a stage or... If you win a stage, it's okay. But if you've got a jersey for a number of days, you end up doing the whole media line, um, whatever you call it now, the, the press zone type thing. And you end up answering the same sort of four or five questions with everyone. Um well, they do get the odd exception, like yourself. You know, you, you got some good questions, different. It keeps it interesting. <laughs> okay. But okay. Um, no, but generally it's the same sort of vibe, isn't it? And it can get a bit sort of tedious sometimes. It's always, you're always generally happy though, like, because you're in a jersey and you're at the tour and it's it's not as bad. Um, but yeah, that that's where it all started, me and Luke. And then the whole Garen Thomas cycling club came about with Tom Fordyce. He was, he'd obviously been in, um, Peter Crouch's podcast uh, with Chris Stark and then he wanted to leave sort of the BBC go out on his own go into this new company who was starting up a podcast like a group of different podcasts um, under the company Crowd Network and I obviously know Tom really well because he's written my books well I should say help me write but we all know he writes them. <laughs> I take out the long words and not, stuff. Not, not, not too many cyclists are that transparent about who their ghostwriters are, but anyway, go on. <laughs> <laughs> and um, So yeah, so I know him quite well. And then he wanted, he thought a cycling sort of uh, arm to it would be nice. And um, I was keen to do it. And it's, it's so different to what's occurring as well. I think that's how they work together. You know, the, the Garen Thomas Cycling Club is a lot more, you know, we have guests on. Tom obviously prepares a bit more than what me and Luke do. Well, me and Luke don't prepare. We just basically jump on and just chat. So the vibe is completely different and what we talk about is generally different. And um, so yeah, I think they bounce off each other quite well. You talk about the preparation there. I mean, I was going to ask you how, I mean, as time has gone on, since you've been doing them for a while now, as the Garrett Thomas Cycling Club's on its third series, you've had a lot of guests. I mean, how much have you found yourself getting interested in the sort of craft of it? Um, you know, it's something that with podcasts, I mean, I had this experience, you start and you think you're just talking into a mic and maybe for some people it continues in that fashion, but then you become aware that, you know, you'll get complaints about the audio quality or you'll get complaints about things you've said, or you'll start to become aware yourself that you're not as articulate as you thought you were, or you can't express <laughs> yourself yeah. as well. And, um, how much do you think about the whole craft of it? Um, my problem is I'm quite busy and I always think, right, I'm going to read this because, you know, I'm not going to lie, you get a bit of a script for some things you got to say. you got yeah. to read out a certain... And I'm really bad at reading out loud. Like, I just go back to year eight it's in difficult. school and yeah. I just start sweating and just getting nervous. Like, I just hate it. Um, and I'm not... I'm just not the best at reading, basically. So that's my biggest challenge. Um when it comes to like the feedback from listeners, obviously we've had a lot of um, more so with what's occurring really is um, the quality and things like that. Um, yeah. But you know, we, we kind of, 
kind of a bit like, yeah, we want to make it sound good, but at the same time, if somebody's annoyed with us, we kind of just, yeah, whatever, just crack on with it, water off a duck's back, really, with me and Luke. We've got a bit of negative feedback through that as well, which we just laugh at. Um, so we don't, you know, we're kind of used to being criticised, really, when you're professional athletes, especially the better you get, the more in the spotlight you get if you don't perform quite as well as what some, you know, so that sort of thing is, I don't know, maybe we're just a lot more accustomed to dealing with that and it doesn't really bother us too much, to be honest. But um, you do want to make it, it's like, I'm quite monotone as well. I'm just quite a bit like, yeah, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And don't get too enthusiastic with my voice. Um, and that's one thing, when you listen to them back, which I used to hate because when you hear your own voice to start with, you're just like, oh my God, do I sound like that? And um, that's the other thing is is really pronounce, you know, um, the word see I, I, i'm getting stuck here now articulating or pronounce yeah like yeah, just pronounce. like emphasizing like certain yeah. things and like um yeah and tom's trying to give me a few tips like using your arms more and just trying to as if you are like and if you're saying like i don't know um see you later like like pointing like see you later type thing and it sounds really stupid when you're doing it but it does actually sound a lot better so it's just little things like that which Obviously, we're not used to because we just race our bikes and do an interview, and to then having to think a bit more about actually how you, yeah, presenting stuff is that's been a challenge. But it's been it's been good fun as well, and it's good to sort of think about when you stop as well. If you end up, not that I want to, you know, go on to bigger and better things in that, but at least it gives me a bit more of a opportunity to, you know. Yeah, and probably a, a more of an appreciation of well storytelling and how the media oh, creates these creates these narratives some good some in your favor some not in your favor yeah, yeah it's like when you hear or i don't know if you just bought a house and you've got to get some new windows you end up seeing different windows oh they're nice windows and it's the same like you you hear some people like oh yeah he's like me reading but then you hear someone else you're like wow that that guy or that woman's like really good at that so yeah you do appreciate it more and do you listen to any podcasts? What are your favourite podcasts? Um, I do listen to you guys, actually. Oh, God. I wouldn't say uh, it's a <laughs> weekly thing, but I definitely do sporadically. Um, but I mainly listen to um, other sports, um, like rugby podcasts or a couple of football. Um, but then I liked, I did like True Crime, but then it just got a bit depressing, really. Like, you know, it's just like when you're listening to kids getting kidnapped or murders like day after day it's like oh i could do it i'm not going to do this much longer now yeah, and yeah, yeah. there was what was the one and one more uh was two comedians now what is it called now it's about our oh, parents in hell so okay. uh obviously we've got a young boy three years old yeah and um it's just funny listening to them that's quite good because that's obviously jovial and an easy listen and just finally on podcast we will get to the cycling in a minute um favorite guest so far or someone who's with their story has really surprised you and kind of entertained you just listening to them um i think john mcavoy in the first series was definitely a big because i knew the story anyway i'd read his book um but his story about you know um a professional criminal basically you know organized crime to then turning his life around and you know um, doing Ironman triathlons and you know rowing in prison which got him out earlier and just how he turned his life around was really like 
a crazy story inspiring as well um and i quite like just different guests as well that aren't necessarily cyclists um we had lori morgan who's like an ultra runner and some of the things she's done is just mental um we've had a few rugby players on obviously aaron ramsey who um i was a big fan of anyway just to chat to them normally um and then even the cyclists you know there's um even brad like brad came on and i thought you know what brad are we gonna get how is this gonna go but he was also really open and talking about stuff which i didn't think would happen so yeah everyone is is so different really yeah you haven't had cav yet have you haven't no he wasn't no. too keen to come on but m- i was gonna say he's not really a podcaster yeah but I think he's been bur- burned by a few podcasts oh i'm uh, sure i'm past, sure i think so the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science Thank you very much to Science in Sport. The discount code to get 25% off at scienceinsport.com is SISCP25. Science in Sport is the fuel of champions. They're the suppliers to Ineos Grenadiers of energy drinks and bars and gels. And as we heard in Daniel's friend of the podcast episode recently, Record of Records, the Science in Sport nutritionist designed the fueling strategy for Filippo Ganna and his hour record ride. And certainly us mere mortals who are riding back perhaps for an hour on the turbo trainer might think well I don't really need to worry too much about my fueling but I've certainly learned over the past few winters that the more you do to pay attention to hydrating before during and after turbo sessions the more you can get out of it because riding on the turbo you're building up a sweat losing quite a lot of fluid there's actually a really interesting article on the scientistsport.com website about the importance of hydration and electrolytes and it suggests how you can work out exactly how much you need to rehydrate by weighing yourself before and after the turbo session or whatever exercise session it is you're doing and take into account how much you're drinking and then you'll know how much you need to replace after the session and they have everything you need to keep well hydrated and replace those crucial electrolytes that you're sweating out when on the turbo or out on the road Uh, the sis go hydro tablet simply dissolved in water will do a lot of that work for you go to scienceinsport.com to check out that article Regular listeners to the Cycling Podcast will know that commercial messages can be filed away with track cycling and cyclocross, that is to say activities which don't traditionally darken my door. However, I have occasionally made exceptions for wine and that is once again going to be the case boom boom today as most of you know over the last few years we at the cycling podcast have been teaming up with divine sellers of london to indulge the complementary passions of wine and grand tour racing every year we and divine indeed offer a giro d'italia case a tour de france case and a vuelta a España case and every year it breaks our heart to have to restrict our choices to only six bottles per grand tour some absolute rip snorters again missed out this year but but fear not ye wine gods because we and divine have found a home for them in a 2022 cycling podcast christmas selection we're going to hear about that selection now and bearing in mind how much some listeners dislike our wine chat we're going to frame this commercial message within the parameters of something else that was deeply unpopular with some listeners this year that is the 90 second time trial summary Greg Andrews of Divine Sellers is on the start ramp and he has 90 seconds to tell us everything about the cycling podcast Divine Sellers Christmas Selection. Off you go, Greg. 
Thank you, Daniel. So we've got six cracking wines lined up, starting with the Vigna de Eli Bianco from the slopes of Mount Etna, a wonderful sort of clean, crisp, lemon-tinged white that has some minerality. Uh, we then go north up to Veneto, where we've got the fabulous indigenous variety Recantina, made by Stefini Vidotto. Uh, wonderful barrel-aged wine, really good for this time of year, and fantastic winter drinker that only just missed out on the selection. Then across to France, Tour de France territory, where this year we didn't touch on a Rhone white. The Lafon didn't get in because of availability concerns. So we get the chance to put this in lovely textured white that should sit well on the dinner table sort of at this time of year. Then sort of moving across to the Languedoc Roussillon, we've got the Catharsis Red, which is one of my favourites, a truly smashable Grenache that won't leave you labouring by the end of a stage. And then Moving down into La Velta territory, we're down right down to Cadiz, where we've got a fantastic Palomino pet nat, lovely sparkling textured pet nat that is a beautiful way to sort of start the festive season. And then finishing up in Ribeiro Sacra with a lovely menthia, really sort of slaty, dark red fruits that come through, not overbearing, but equally enough meat on the bones to sit with most red meat dishes. You know. So there you go, Daniel. There's our six wines for the Christmas case. Hopefully everyone will enjoy them. And if nothing else, Merry Christmas. Greg, you've sneaked in under the time limit. How do people order? So we can easily order uh, via our website, divinesellers.com, where we should be on the front page. But equally, all the cycling podcasts cases are listed there and are still available for this year. That's divinesellers, D, the letter D, vinesellers.com. You'll find everything you need on there. Please drink responsibly and, well, a Merry Christmas from me. And a Merry Christmas from you, Greg. Merry Christmas. Geraint, I said we'd get on to the cycling and we'd get on to the main reason why you're here. Comeback of the year. Let's start with that. Is it a comeback? Do you consider it a comeback? Uh, uh, I kind of... Have you never been away? LL Cool J reference from, I don't know, probably <laughs> before you were born. Yeah, I, I wouldn't see it as necessarily a comeback because, yeah, I, I don't feel like... I had any issue that was holding me back or I just had a, a bit of terrible luck really two years and I felt like I was still in the form to perform on those two years just one reason or another different each year but I didn't I wasn't in the place to do it um, but then again as we said before we jumped on a win's a win and I'm happy to take it for sure <laughs> <laughs> Just thinking about this year then, um, I mean, I know you've done quite a few interviews and the the thing that people have sort of zeroed in on, partly because you offered up this piece of information, is that there was some sort of feedback in the team that, or well, there was a sense you got that people didn't believe in you as the guy for the Tour de France anymore. Um, if you will, if you don't mind, tell us specifically about what it was that gave you that sense. Was it a specific conversation? Where did the conversation happen? You can tell us who it was with if you want. You don't have to. Just talk to us about about that moment. Uh, so those moments. Yeah. Before I get into it, I just want to say like I I'm, I don't hold a grudge or anything now, but just because I've done so many of these interviews now, and it feels like I'm keep banging on about it. So it's everything's good with the team. Um, but yeah, I think it was more just. Um, this sort of time last year, October, November, like the contract was still 
ongoing or maybe a bit earlier actually still in the season but um, the team sort of just basically um, saw my role changing and more of um, being there for the younger guys uh, you know the salary was obviously a lot lower but there was bonuses when it came to helping people and results myself but it was kind of like without being like telling me exactly word for word like but the feeling I got was we don't really think you're good enough in the next couple of years so this was kind of in the contract negotiations when obviously I mean I don't know whether it was all your agent or you but obviously these conversations it's kind of obvious how they think yeah um, of yeah. You. yeah and it just got to the stage where I was just like well I'm just going to chat to the team myself and it felt like sometimes it, it wasn't too clear um but then, you know, at, at the end of the day, I had another offer, a good offer from another team, but I would, I would prefer to stay even in this new role they saw for me, which I still believed I could ride better than that. I could still perform myself and go for results. But my feeling was I'd just rather, in the twilight of my career, last two, three years, I'd rather stay where I am because I know... I get on with so many of the riders. A lot of them are my childhood mates. I know the staff really well. It's a good environment for me. Um, if I was to change, it would be purely for the money. And it was never about that. It was just um, wanting to enjoy my last few years. And, and we say it's not about the money, but then at the same time, you want to feel appreciated. You know, it's this, and the money is how much they sort of value you almost. But, you know, I accepted that. Um chose to stay and I'm really happy I did because um, I still had all the support. Um, there wasn't as much expectation, obviously, because of the sort of role they saw me doing, but it was just the pressure I put on myself to... So I was like, right, it's not necessarily just proving the team wrong, but it's, you know, you felt the same from the surroundings as well, you know? like I, I don't read too much on social media or cycling websites, but stuff filters through, you know, and, and a lot of people talking about my age and, you know, past it now and this and that. And I just wanted to show people that I'm still, okay, didn't win the tour, but, you know, you're still in there fighting and, and in the mix, really, and can still perform in other races. You're generally someone that comes across as so laid back that that sort of any kind of sense of defiance, people don't really, wouldn't necessarily associate that with you. But, um, you know, I remember when you won the tour and, you sort of lightheartedly made the remark um our late great friend Richard Moore had said something in a podcast before the tour that it, it was fanciful that Geraint Thomas was going to uh. win the tour and I remember you listened back to this and you then told Richard and you told us that you'd listened back to it so you know that sort of hints at a little bit of a there is a very kind of gentle middle finger that you sometimes you know as as we all do as humans when people write you off you want to kind of prove them wrong um so how did that you know how did that feel going into the year I mean it, it doesn't sound like it was a raging fire within you to to prove people wrong but it was kind of there at the back of your mind yeah yeah I think um I wouldn't say middle finger either I'd say more of a double sort of flick in the v's you know like Mr Bean style <laughs> yeah. but um but no I think um it's always that's always been in me always wanted to win and perform but I'm not someone who overthinks too much or 
goes out and speaks about it much. I'm more just, I just like to take the more, um, you know, relaxed approach really. And, but inside of, of definitely, you know, determines and have your plan and, and what you want to do along the way. Um, so yeah, going into that season, it was, I wouldn't say it was my main, it was definitely a high motivator for sure. Just the fact that people kind of thought I was done and I knew that I had confidence in, I changed coach, um, went from Tim Carrison to, to Connor and that was good. That was just a change and, and a change of good as a rest and all that. That's Connor. Just remind me the Connor Taylor. surname. Taylor. Taylor. I'm pretty sure it's Taylor. Um, yeah. Connor Swift is the rider who's just joined us, but, um, so yeah, it was a different approach and I decided, yeah, I'm just going to, going to go with this. Um, not a hundred percent, but you know, I'd question certain things and it was a good sort of discussion about how it was basically involving a lot more rest. And, and I was so used to doing volume and my attitude was always, I got to get home from training completely nailed, completely dead or starving hungry. Otherwise well, I hadn't worked hard enough. Um, and this was a completely different approach, you know, fueling a lot more in training, shorter rides, more intense, and just being fresher for those intense efforts. Whereas in the past would be, yeah, but in a race I'm gonna be tired. So if I'm tired for them, it doesn't matter. And which there is a time and a place for, but I think the general mindset was a lot more on freshness rather than just push, push, push. And that made a big impact as well, I think. What you just said about eating more in rides, I've heard that quite a lot over the last couple of years. I think that's possibly due to advances in the nutritional products that you're using. Um, but what you said about freshness, is that a general trend that I would find and we would hear about in a lot of teams with a lot of coaches now? They're slightly tweaking their approach or was that something that was specific to you and it was felt that you were not resting enough? Um Definitely specific to me, but I think also it is a common theme now in in a lot of other teams and riders. Like when you speak to people like down here in Monaco, for instance, there's you know, a lot of pros in other teams and this time of year is a chance where you can all sort of ride together because no one's doing too many efforts. But then it's a common thing, like a lot of them are starting efforts already and they're doing this and that. And I was just thinking, Poor, before I never even did an effort until like January, you know, I'd go on December camp and you know, kind of do a little bit of something, but so yeah, that was the one of the big changes in the sport. Really, I think is a lot more because you race for you still need a lot of endurance, but you know, a lot of the races is three and a half, four hours, and but super intense. And I think you just gotta bear that in mind as well, really. And in these days, it's hard to like in the past. I used to use races slowly to build up, whereas now even in February, those races are, are full on. And if you go them not too fit, you're just going to suffer for, it's not going to be enjoyable, you know? So. You mentioned Tim Kerrison leaving. As far as I could gather, and speaking to people in the team throughout the year, really, particularly the first half of the year, him leaving was part of a just a bigger coach change. It felt like a bit of a different team. There were quite a few personnel changes this year. And uh, I, th I think, and, the, the Tour de France the previous year, 2021, had, I think, been quite a bad experience for a lot of people involved. The, you know, things didn't go your way and the atmosphere in the team wasn't as what it should be, people felt. I mean, did you feel that a lot had changed this year and it was a bit like a different team early in the year? 
Yeah, I think it's definitely um, um, in transition almost, the team, like from the Sky years. Um, there's a few different staff, you know, nutritionists has changed a couple of times since. Um, you know, Tim was, yeah, he was part of senior management. And I think uh, I think he needed a bit of a change as well. I think he had sort of, you know, he'd won the tour with Brad, with Froomey four times and with me. And I think he was sort of, he just needed a bit of a new challenge. He's a bit like a medic, you know, they like to sort of keep learning and doing different things all the time. And Tim's similar in a way, like, you know, he'd done swimming and rowing and uh, spent a lot of time in cycling. I think he sort of needed that as well. Um, so the coaching staff has changed a bit. As I say, nutrition, you know, we've got a lot of younger guys now and um, yeah, it definitely feels like, you know, Dave has also sort of, he had his health issues in the past like couple of years and now he's also head of Ineos Sports. So, you know, I think there's like there's six or seven sports involved in that. So he's not day-to-day -day cycling, cycling, cycling. Um, well, the last six months he's been full on at Nice football, which I don't think has been too enjoyable for him. But um, yeah, so then Rod is sort of like heading up the team. So it's definitely um, changes and, and a lot of change really, but the the ethos and the sort of the the culture in the team is is pretty much the same, you know, basically hard work and just, you know, the way we go about things. But it's definitely, yeah, the next year or two will be interesting to see how it goes. And just going back a minute to what you said about the resting as well, and I know you mentioned age and you were kind of being bombarded with that message about your age early in the year. Um, and it's sort of received knowledge in cycling that 35, 36, that's when you cease to be competitive in grand tours. But the, the, the idea of having more rest, was that anything to do with age and anything to do with the feeling that maybe an older athlete needed more rest? Uh, I don't think so. I think it was just purely like, I just did a lot, did too much at times where, you know, I think, um, biggest week I've done is like a 42 hour week and um, quite a few sort of uh, 75 to 80 hour you know fortnights and it's just that mentality of always pushing you know and I think just trying to get to rest a bit more it's, it's common sense when you take yourself out of the that situation you know if I was looking after someone I'd be like yeah definitely have this rest day you know have a total day off if you want and that's when your body adapts and changes and gets stronger and you don't have to keep pushing all the time. And, and to be honest, in the COVID year, 2020, that was the biggest, that was where I suffered the most because I didn't have a race to at least have a couple of days easy into. It was always just push, push, push as an easy day and then push, push, push. And um, yeah, that's when at, at the Dauphiné in 2020, um, I was just nailed. And that's when we made the decision at the end of there to go for the Giro because I had an extra maybe two weeks, I think it was. Um, it's The Giro started two weeks after the tour. So I had a complete week off, um, did a big volume week just to chip off a bit of weight and then went to Tirreno and was second there and was was flying around. But that was purely because of the rest. Um, so I just learned that lesson a bit too late really for that year. But um, yeah, Connor might say something different, I don't know, but... I think it was just purely based on on me as a as an athlete, really. Um, Garen, we've, we've spoken loads in the last couple of years about these young riders emerging earlier than they used to, and one reason that I think everyone agrees um, is a factor is that the 
quality of the feedback they get now um, in terms of the data metrics. You know, people talk about wicked learning environments and kind learning environments, wicked learning environments where they feedback's not very reliable or non-existent. And that was maybe how cycling used to be. Whereas now it's a kind of a kind learning environment where, you know, you can see on your power meter straight away how good you are. And, you know, we've we've talked about this as, as helping young guys to come into sport earlier what almost no one has talked about is that it also helps guys at the other end of the age scale um that that you can see what's happening with your body for example what you just said about rest uh, you can see exactly how that impacts your performance i mean do you think that that has has helped you particularly in the last couple of years to just see how your body might be changed not necessarily deteriorating but changing slightly yeah i think so i think um but it's being able to to use that information in the right way and being able to uh, or willing to to change your habits because the one thing that holds older riders back for sure is just their beliefs. You know that, that those belief systems they've just built up over you know fifteen years as a pro. Be like, well, I've always done it this way. Why why do I need to do it this way? You know what? Why do I need to do more rests or do more efforts like this or that? Um, you know, it worked for me in the past type thing. So, um, but it definitely all, all that information is, is, is an advantage for sure. It's just, as I say, understanding it as well and not just, um, it's like, you know, when you have a baby, for instance, and everyone's giving you all this advice, that's what kind of data is like really. It's just filtering through it and making sure you understand it all and taking what you need from it rather than trying to do everything. Um, but yeah, I think with the young guys, it's it's so much easier to to get hold of that information. And young guys like Mag- Magnus Sheffield, for instance, in our team, mate, he's just he's telling me all this stuff about you know aero and this and aero that, and and him and Plappy, when we were in like Romandy this year, they're just going on about this and that. And then the old school bit of me is kind of like, mate, just just push the pedals, like front your bike, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know, it all does add up, and it all you do need to sort of know about it. It's just don't get hung up on that sort of stuff, which they don't, to be fair. But um, yeah, just got to push the pedals hard, haven't you? <laughs> Ultimately. Yeah. Um, I mean, thinking back to when you were, well, maybe not that age, but your, at that point of your career, at the start of your career, I mean, when I think of when you came into the pro ranks, I always remember your first Tour de France 2007. You were 21. And I remember having a conversation with um, Claudio Corti, who was your team manager at Barla World. And no one really knew what kind of rider you were going to be. You could tell that you were talented. And I remember talking to him about it and he said, oh yeah, there aren't many riders who can ride at 60 kilometers an hour in the last few kilometers of a you know Tour de France stage at 21 or whatever. And from that, I deduced that, well, I took away that you were probably going to be a lead out man. Then I remember speaking to Max Chandry, a couple of months later, I think at the Tour of Britain, and he said, oh, gee, he's going to be a classics rider. He's going to be a classics rider. Hmm. Um, just thinking just thinking back to, to, to that period, 2007, 2008, because it was a long time. I think it was 13 Grand Tours before you finished in the top 10 of a Grand Tour, and in fact, you won it. Um, how, how soon did you spy this opportunity to become a Grand Tour rider on the horizon? Well, it wasn't until... I think 2016 was the first time I really thought, right, I want to be a good backup to Froomey. Because um, back in those days, yeah, I was, I was basically a track rider using the roads to get as fit as I could. and But also 
because I'd grown up watching pro racing and just wanted to be a pro and doing all those races anyway. But, you know, the main goal was the Olympics, especially pre-Beijing. So, um, yeah, like the, the lead outs and stuff I always enjoyed because I like just getting stuck in and that little the fight for it as well and then had the power and the gas and I was quite small and sli- silk, slick, slick's the word, um, you know, aero-wise. So I could actually, you know, be able to do a decent job there and I remember the first lead out so my first race with Barlow World was in Tour Down Under and Robbie Hunter was our sprinter and um, I was petrified of him because I'd heard all the stories and uh, there was a few training rides where he got angry at like bus drivers and stuff I was like right I, I can't piss this guy off <laughs> <laughs> I've got to do a good job in this lead out and um, we did one in training and they put me like near the front you know maybe second guy in the team out of the seven and the three guys behind couldn't even get past me and then suddenly it was you know kind of got a bit more respect from them and you moved your way up through the the ranks of that team and um, you fell into that role because yeah that was my my strength at that time and then yeah obviously went into Sky and the classics were a bit more of a of a target performed okay in them but you know never well I didn't win one or didn't get on the podium on one which is what I really wanted to do and but then obviously through that time started looking the one week races and, and all these other races were sort of my chance to get my own results and then you'd go to the tour and you'd help Brad or, or through me and then as the years go by you know you, you shed a bit more weight and you just get a bit stronger and you get a bit more confident and you want to you know try and do bigger and better things and yeah 16 was the first year when um, so I'd won Paris East by then um, but then also with one E3 like the biggest classic I, I, I won and um yeah, so I went to Tour Swiss as a leader, really, to try and win that. Totally bombed out. I was, I was just lost a bit too much weight before it, and was just, I was just too light and no power. Really, ended up I don't know eleventh, I think, and then suddenly my role changed. And right, you go to the tour, but you just go to help through me. Don't worry about backup. And I was, I was, I was okay. And then the following year was when I went full on for the Giro. Then and um, yeah, crashed out of that parked motorbike you know police motorbike out of a corner took us over that all out so but yeah it was it was more of a, a definitely a slow build it def, definitely wasn't like we were saying earlier about the young guys just coming straight in and, and and winning those big things but it's been good to experience all the different kinds of of races as well really and, and slowly work my way up through the team did you really feel, and we'll sort of get to the Tour de France now this year, did you really feel that this year you managed to put together all of those things that you learned in those Grand Tours over the years? Maybe even more so than when when you won the Tour de France in 2018 where you were, you know, you are obviously powered by incredible form. And, um, you know, this year the odds were against you in, in a lot of ways. But, you, you know, you... You showed all the craft of someone who had had a very long learning curve. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's just like, yeah, when you look at all different stages, for instance, um, some of the ones that Pogaccia won early on, or the one, um, that uphill finish. Um, and there was another uphill finish with Van Aert one. And days like that, just saving as much as you could, really, and not getting too stressed about trying to, you know, sprint for third when or try and get some time bonuses when there's Michael Matthews there and Van Aert and X, Y and Z so you're just like well you know try and that save said, it a bit that said wasn't one of those days when you had your highest one minute power ever 
Yeah, that, that one was the finishes. first. That was the first stage where Van Aert won when we went up. Was it mm. into Calais? And there was that steep, yeah. like two-minute kicker. Yeah, that was my best one and two-minute power ever. Um, Can you remember the numbers, roughly? Oh, off the top of my head, the two-minute would have been over six hundred because it was around six hundred. The one minute, I'm not so sure because I don't really ever think about those numbers. And um, but working with Connor this year again, it was working a lot more on that, trying to just be a bit more punchy. So in races where there is you know, kicks like that and I can get over them and it take less out of me basically for, for the final. Um, but yeah, just the whole nutrition stuff and, and just having the confidence just to, to ride your race as well and, and not get, for instance, you know, in the mountains when Pogacar and, and Vingegaard were just kicking each other's heads in and just staying focused on what I had to do. And yeah, just coming back to them and, and knowing that they will end up just looking at each other because, they're just racing each other, so there's no point in even trying to jump with them. Just, just keep riding a good tempo for 30 seconds, and I'll get back. And so, um, yeah, I was learning a lot of that, and and the mental side as well. You know, dealing with everything around the tour, like, and because it's a massive circus, and it? it's just you know, it's so much like, yeah, faff almost around it. And um, you know, every day it's like a soap opera. Every day there's some sort of story within the peloton, and um, it's just. The whole package, I guess, yeah, as you say. And it's no secret that you've had a lot of bad luck in Grand Tours over the last um, few years. I mean, does it still frustrate you a little bit that people don't appreciate fully what a role luck has in elite sport? Um, you know, I was talking to a couple of guys a couple of weeks ago, Larry Warbass and Joe Dombrowski, and they, you know, they're trying to emphasize this, but almost as they were saying it, again, it was on a podcast, I could, I was still thinking, the listeners are still not going to understand fully what you're saying. In, they were talking about getting into breaks and how difficult it is to win from a break and how much luck is involved in that. But, it, you know, it applies to crashes and it applies to a lot of things that you've experienced in your career. And it's huge. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because a lot of crashes are your fault and then a lot of crashes aren't and there's not much you can do about it. And, you know, and then there ends up being that narrative, oh yeah, G's crashed again. Even though, I might have only crashed once or twice in, in a year, which, you know, ask any pro, every pro pretty much crashes in a year of racing. Um, but yeah, it, luck does come into it a lot. And I think the one that does sort of irritate me is um, the Giro one in in 2020. When you crashed on the bottle yeah. in Sicily, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because not so much what it is annoying that I felt I was in great shape and able to do something and didn't get the chance to at least try. But it's more the fact that afterwards nothing is done about it. So Ineos are, are really into their safety stuff because obviously it's, you know, the the things that the company does, safety is a big deal. And um, I was chatting to one of the guys there and, and he just broke it down and was like, well, for instance, the bottle didn't pop open. Like, why didn't it pop open? You know, because they've redesigned them. There's a twisty thing and I'm not sure why it doesn't. If it was, if it did pop open, it wouldn't have thrown me off my bike. Is one thing. Um, another thing, why did it bounce out of the cage in the first place? Like, we it was a neutral zone. We didn't have to be going that fast. The car in front was going quite fast, you know. Did we have to go down that road in the first place? You know, if we did, why did he not just drive a bit slower? Um, can the bottle cages be better anyway? Um, you know, there's so many, like, questions like that, which... And then everyone in 
especially like you know the powers that be just kind of see it oh yeah well it was a crash you know bottle come out it all they always come out well can we do something to stop them coming out at least less often um so there's so many different things involved in that which don't even get looked at or improved which that's a frustrating thing because it could be go on for the next 20 years oh yeah bottles come out of cages and, and can cause a crash which if you can reduce it then why wouldn't you you know Hmm. and I mean of all those you've heard them all the theories about why you have crashed so much over the years I mean I've you know the people say you're too high on the you know weekend warriors will tell you saddles too high um you know I've heard people who maybe do have a bit of an idea I remember speaking to Rod Ellingworth years ago and and him saying well Geraint's someone who likes to get he gets right in the thick of it in the you know he likes to be in the action and he go maybe goes in places in the peloton where other people wouldn't go or um i mean of all of those observations are there any that you would say and others that you've heard are there any that you would say are, f- are sort of fair and accurate and maybe uh, that is a little bit of a weakness uh, and that have contributed um well my saddle has come down quite a bit last year <laughs> did did that <laughs> contribute i don't think so i don't think so i don't think it affected the handling of the bike at all um i think you know what, what rod said would be fair um not so much now but when i was a bit younger i'd get sort of in that eye of the storm a bit more and especially when it was my opportunity to do well i felt like i had to save as much as possible and you just end up just being in in the the thick of it a bit too often really and and just instead of just yeah taking a bit of wind or using the legs a bit earlier on um that would be fair but yeah i think some of it you know sometimes you you might not be concentrating fully um for instance 21 when i crashed and dislocated my shoulder it was my fault at the end of the day you know it, it was wet um, hit a speed bump and I wasn't really holding the bars properly it was just a bit too chilled and both my hands slipped off the bars and anyone who's ridden a bike and has done that it's, it's not a lot you can do about it and landed awkwardly popped my shoulder out and that was that but um, so over the years for sure there's been some that are my fault but then others which are just like well pff, you know what can you do like when I did my pelvis in 13 it was just a massive pile up and okay, maybe if I could bunny up half a metre, I might have missed whoever it was that crashed in front of me. But yeah, sometimes it's Swiss when you're, I think in 2019, there was a bike path, a bit of a lip, someone hit it and he fell to his left. I was on the bike path, just fell into my front wheel, basically. Took me out. I cut my eye and the doctor stopped me racing purely because of that. So, you know, it's... It's just the wrong place, the wrong time sometimes. Um, but yeah, as I say, other times it's, it's putting yourself in that position in the first place. Um, these days I try to just take a bit more wins and not take as many sort of risks and ride in different places. But yeah, sometimes there's not so much you can do really. Like those those sprints in the tour, this year we were really lucky. There wasn't any big crashes really. It, not many guys pulled out, but there's been years in the past where there's just been just been chaos haven't it and you just got to be lucky to be in the right place then so Garen you've spoken in various other places about this standing on top of the podium or standing on third spot of the podium this year and how satisfying that was I mean have you reflected on the fact over the last two or three months that that might 
be the last time in the Tour de France, given that you've already said you want to do the Giro next year? Yeah, yeah, something I've been thinking about a bit recently, and um, in my head, it's kind of quite a nice way to finish. Um, although it would have been nice to have known it would have been my last tour, but yeah, it's it's a strange, it's funny though, it's a strange one thinking that. Um, like George Solomon, who used to work for the team, he messaged me the other day about yeah, he's rubbing salt into the wounds of Wales football. They're saying about me like being thirty six on the podium, and I was like. Yeah, 36 is quite old really, isn't it now? You don't really hear that too much, but that's when it sort of hit me a bit. And then, yeah, with the toys, you know, I've got a contract at the end of next year. I might do one after that. Um, so it might not be my last tour, but it also might be. And um, yeah, I've done 12, so I feel like I've I've done it now. I think I've done it enough, but it's still the tour and you, you still want to do the biggest bike race in the world. But yeah, as you say, the Giro is going to be my first target. We'll see how that goes and uh, see how the, the the year pans out after that. And again, purely on the basis of your age and history, recent history, not that many guys beyond 35 have, have challenged in major tours. People are going to kind of write you off again. Um, I guess you you'll say that, that they shouldn't, especially with seventy kilometers of time trials. Whatever whatever plans Remco Evenepoel might have. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I'm just excited. You know, I, the main thing for me is getting excited about racing and 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 having a goal where it makes you get out of bed in the morning and just go and ride your bike and and do the the sacrifices needed to get to the top. Because if you can't do that, then I. You know, if I can't commit fully, then I won't be anywhere near it, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, to be honest, with the whole proving people wrong um, stuff, I kind of feel like that box is ticked now as well. And this year is just a, a year to go out there and just enjoy it, knowing that the finish line to my career is is close. It could be this year, it could be next year, but definitely won't be racing in 2025. So it's... Um, it's all about just enjoying it, you know, bringing Max to some races, you know, he's three now, as I said, and just for him to hopefully remember some, or at least, you know, have some good photos together. And so, um, yeah. And the Giro, yeah. 70 K a time trialing, but that last one's a bit of a bastard, isn't it? Like, <laughs> like 7 K at 12% or something. Um, mm -hmm. not your typical time trial, but, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it and hopefully I can be there in the mix and, you know, just give Remco something to think about, at least early on anyway. But um He's he's already out there doing recons. He's already on the Amalfi coast. Have you got any planned for the next few weeks even? Not really. I think for me now, I I'm not the biggest advocate of recons. I think they're just a bit overrated because mainly because really? yeah. I've gone and done quite a few before and ended up just crashing out of the race or whatever. So I'm a bit like, well, I was pointless on it. <laughs> and then this year I didn't bother doing any and like in my head you basically have the legs and you go or you get dropped you know so yeah, it does help 100% it helps knowing what's coming but I'd rather focus on just the training and the rest I mean yeah I mean who knows there is a, maybe a school of thought that if you haven't done them and you're not you don't sort of lock into that kind of mode of trying to repeat or uh, what you've already done what you've already seen and maybe you're more aware of your surroundings in the moment and you're more alert and maybe and i don't know that does help yeah. guard against crashing <laughs> and make yeah 
ignorance is bliss as well, isn't it? You there know, you go. I think <laughs> if you're you suffering go. and you know it's going to get even harder, it could have a negative effect, couldn't it? Well, Garen, you are uh, the winner of our Comeback of the Year award. So congratulations on that. Just before we go, I'm going to ask you, how are you spending Christmas? Uh, we're going to have a first one down here in France, actually. Um, you know, as, I, as I've said, I'm going to be retired soon and we're going to end up back in Cardiff. So we thought, why not? have a different Christmas this year so the in-laws coming down um, nephew and niece as well so yeah it'll be be really nice looking forward to that and hopefully it'll keep me on straight and narrow a bit more than Cardiff would well, you look pretty slim at the moment um, and Garrett last thing a lot of people be at home at Christmas watching TV watching series documentaries films that kind of thing anything over the last year that you've particularly enjoyed we started off talking about podcasts podcasts that you've enjoyed any films or anything you oh. recommend now that they they won't be watching the World Cup now that Wales have been <laughs> yeah um, thanks for reminding me uh, films don't get a chance to watch too many films I'm trying to think of the last sort of series that I watched started watching some new one on Netflix now actually which is it's pretty good um, what the hell is it called though my wife's <laughs> missing this is going well <laughs> it is what, what's that series we started watching my wife's just walked in by the way good timing oh okay on Netflix with Inside Man that's pretty good okay. I haven't seen it about, all though so about it's about he's murdered his wife he's in prison he's on death row but he helps other people sort of solve weird murders or missing cases okay. type thing is this true crime or fiction no it's it's fiction okay. what was that Drama. Stanley Tucci Oh yes, Stanley Tucci. Yeah. He's, well, there you go. You don't need to do a recon of the Giro route. Just watch Stanley Tucci's <laughs> programs about Italy. There you go. There yeah, you go. yeah. Um, I'll I'll give you a recommendation since you you enjoy football. Um, the documentary Dutch documentary Dutch documentary about Louis Van Gaal, the, oh. um, which is on Amazon Prime at the moment, but also well, it's available in English. Um, outstanding one of the best sports documentaries I've ever seen so I think it's called Louis in England it might be called Van Gaal in Netherlands or the other way around sweet I'll anyway, get on that one then have you seen the Arsenal one all or nothing I have I have um, not but I mean you're, you you were presumably a participant in the Netflix documentary which will yes. come out next year they were at the Tour de France um, this year filming you how did that go it was good. It was good. They weren't too intrusive, really. You kind of got used to them. The guys were nice that were doing it. And, um, yeah. Anything juicy we're going to see? Well, I don't know. That's the problem, isn't it? They were there a lot. and <laughs> I heard that. Yeah, not from your team, but I heard it's going to be a very juicy storyline that's going to come out of the EF, the footage Ruby. that was filmed. Of yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm looking that, forward to seeing be, that one. That could be quite fun. <laughs> and well, Geraint, thank you very much. Um, for your time and well, congratulations Pleasure. again on the award and very Merry Christmas to you and your family you too have a great one do I get a trophy by the way no oh. <laughs> maybe a mug a you sticker? might get a mug okay <laughs> nice one cheers, cheers. Garrett thanks a lot the cycling podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney